sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, the topic of the day, the Constitution and its continued erosion. My guest today, Rob Boston, is editor of Church and State Magazine, senior advisor for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Rob, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thanks for having me on, Alan. So big picture, what's the biggest concern with the erosion of our First Amendment freedoms when it comes to religion? Well, I think you put your finger right on it with the use of the word erosion. We are seeing the concept of separation of church and state at the Supreme Court really being eroded by the current court to the point where it's almost meaningless. At the same time, the court has adopted a theory of religious freedom that is so broad and so expansive that I think that concept is now being used to trample on the rights of others. And that's a great concern of ours. When you say trample on the rights of others, um, in our culture war climate today, I dare say that the Christian community, very many are communicating that Christians are the ones whose religious freedom rights are really under attack. When you say trampling on the rights of others, are you seeing uh, Christians on the short end of these things, or are you seeing it primarily people of other faiths? Now, I think right now we're dealing with a situation where Christians don't really have to worry about their rights being suppressed. If anything, they're ascendant. What we are seeing are uh, pretty aggressive attempts to, for example, allow religion to be used as a vehicle to discriminate against people in secular settings. Now, I want to be clear, Alan. Nobody's saying that houses of worship don't have the right to offer their services to whomever they want or deny them to whomever they want. But in secular settings like businesses and so on, uh, for someone to use religion as an instrument of discrimination is troubling. We've also seen examples recently of people being denied the ability to do things like engage in foster care or adoption because they're not meeting a, a religious litmus test and the agency that's government funded has set up. So these are some of the concerns that we have that are have been before the court and will probably reach it again in the years to come. Well, one of the cases before the court that really concerns me has to do with the ongoing erosion of the notion that, that religion is voluntary and that it's funded privately rather than by the state, right? Alan, for a long time in the United States, the tradition had been that religion supported itself. If you really believed in your house of worship, you dug deep into your pot, you kept it going, that was meaningful for you. But starting in the 80s and into the 90s and going forward, the Supreme Court began adopting this idea that there were some occasions where the government could fund religious schools and, and other religious entities. And now we may be on the verge of the Supreme Court saying that in some cases, the state may be required to fund religion. It's just absolute flip from our traditional practices in our history. It is. And I think Americans don't realize that really the Baptists were at the foremost, at the forefront of championing the, this concept of voluntarism in religion. I have a very uh, simple quip uh, about this. I say, what do we call a school that is funded by the state? We call it a public school, right? And so if you want your religious school to get funded by the state, then you know you can pretty much be reassured that it will eventually become 
little different than the public school because in this country we have a tradition and a practice you know whoever has the gold makes the rules right that if the state is going to fund something then you're accountable to play by its rules and uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that the more that religion gets funding from the state the less freedom it has the more it's going to have to play by rules that it won't always agree with I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and you don't need to, to look much beyond the European experience to see what happens when church and state get too close. And inevitably, there is a secularizing effect. And there may be some people who will think right now, oh, it's great. You know, we're going to get all this money. But money comes with strings. Inevitably, there's going to be control. There's going to be regulation. And these church schools will, will start to lose some of their distinctiveness. So they're really the ones that, that need to be aware that uh, this money is is tainted, that it's going to probably reduce their religiosity in the years to come. You know, when you talk, Rob, about the secularizing tendencies of government money, it reminds me, I'm reminded of one of uh, my mentors, Lee Boothby, who served for many years as chief counsel of, of your organization, Americans United. And he said to me years ago, if a religious school wants to secularize, all it has to do is nothing, because all of the forces of society are pushing it in that direction. But if you want to retain your religious character, you have to be very intentional about that. And we see these secularizing trends. And frankly, I don't think that the drive for funding from the state is going to help the churches and their schools retain their religious character. I agree completely. And, you know, Lee Boothby was a towering figure in this field, and he was absolutely right about that. It's just inevitable. Uh, once this state money is taken, it's an opening for people to begin to say, well, you know, you can't discriminate anymore on grounds of hiring, and you're going to have to open up your, your admissions process and, and allow other types of students to come in. And it's just inevitable that there's going to be a demand for regulation because people are going to say, well, I'm funding this school. Why should they be able to just do whatever they want? No public school gets to do that. You know, back in 2000, Rob, I was part of a coalition that was opposing tuition vouchers here in California. And I remember sitting around the table with others who were lamenting the notion that, you know, these Christian schools are teaching creationism. And it was quite clear to me that if vouchers passed in a state like California and, and religious schools started to take government money, that there would be intensive pressures on reviewing what gets taught in the science curriculum and insisting that the science curriculum conform to standards that did not include creationism. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of Christians who would be concerned about that, but I think that's a, a good example of what we're talking about. It is, and I think there are others we should look at as well. You know, think about the, the progress that the LGBTQ community has made in this country over, say, the past 25 or 30 years. Now, there are some schools, some religious schools, that don't want to admit students like that or don't want to hire people from that community to work in their schools. And as long as they're privately funded, they have that right. But when the public money comes in, that does give an opening for people to say, well, you know, you're taking my tax dollars. Should you be able to discriminate in that blatant manner? Well, and, you know, even in states like California, for example, there are broad protections for religious schools from the non-discrimination laws. But even with those protections, 
the the funding programs have their own discrimination laws written into them. And so what can easily happen is a school gets dependent upon this money, and then someone complains that they discriminated, say, against a gay person, and then the funding gets cut off. And all of a sudden, they're left high and dry uh, without the money that they've come to depend upon. So there's a lot of ways this can come down to, to really bite the school badly. I think what we need to do, Alan, is actually take a step back and look at the larger issue of this whole question of, of the appropriateness of, of government funding of religious enterprises. When I was a kid growing up in western Pennsylvania, the town I lived in had probably 10 or 12 Catholic schools. It was a very Catholic region, and the support was there. But as years went by, people began to send their children to public schools for various reasons or just decided they didn't want to pay that tuition. And some of those schools began to close. Now, the church can look at that in a couple of different ways. It can deal with that reality. It can consolidate schools. It can close schools, realize that the demand maybe has dropped, or it could request a government bailout. And I, I guess my answer to that would be, you know, you need to look to your own members. If your own members aren't supporting what you're doing, then maybe the clergy ought to ask, what do we need to do differently? How do we need to adapt and not expect the government to throw you a lifeline? Well, you know, I so agree. Uh, when I lived in New York years ago, I was asked, all the families in the church were asked to put up money so that they could subsidize tuition for all the kids who wanted to go. And it was really very affordable. And I've come to the conclusion that the church in America is wealthy enough by far to provide every kid who wants it, a Christian education. Uh, we don't have the will to do it. We have the funds. But if we really were willing, if we valued Christian education more than, you know, our Netflix accounts and our fancy cars or what have you, you know, um, we don't need we don't need tax dollars. You know, we need to dig deep and, and uh, if this is what we care about. But the fact that, you know, private religious education is out of reach for so many kids is a function of the fact that. We as a, as a faith community just don't care enough to provide them a Christian education. I think that's the real tragedy here. Yeah, you raise a good point. I mean, you think about the amount of money that is voluntarily donated to houses of worship in America every year. I'm sure it runs into the billions. There's plenty of money there. It's just a matter of priorities. So, you know, but going back to our, our core topic here, the court, the Supreme Court has been eroding the very concept that there should be a separation of church and state. Um, does the experience of the churches in Europe give us any picture of what our future might look like? You know, actually, I think we're at a very interesting moment right now, Alan, because you're probably aware of the demographic trends that are underway in the United States, where growing numbers of people are declaring themselves nuns when it comes to religion, saying they have no religious belief. Now, these people aren't necessarily embracing atheism or turning their backs entirely on religion, but they are, in growing numbers, turning their backs on institutionalized religion. They're turning away from houses of worship. And, and again, that's going to have a very powerful effect in this country, because how would the church respond? The answer is not for religious groups to look for the government for a bailout. It is for them to sort of look at their own experience and say, well, how do we deal with this? Do we need to consolidate churches? Do we need to downsize? Uh, I think the temptation will be to look for bailouts from the state, but 
that won't save them in the long run. It's the demographic trends are moving toward a more secular America, as we have seen in many European nations. Well, and I guess the you know what I think that's a good point, Rob. What I think of when I look to Europe is that um, making churches dependent on government, uh, it's kind of like welfare, and 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 we we've come to believe in this country, many of us, that welfare saps vitality. It saps you know becoming dependent is not healthy for folks. That you know we're we're big on self reliance. And uh, the experience in Europe has been that churches, once they start on the government dole and people aren't funding them, uh, they stop going and their their commitment wanes. So it's exactly. In fact, there were a couple of state churches in, I think, Scandinavian regions like Sweden and a few other nations. But the church actually said, look, we would like to be disestablished. It was a, a last ditch effort to try to get something going again, you know, after like 800 years to request disestablishment. But honestly, Alan, at that point, it's too late, too late. Well, we appreciate you guys fighting the battle for the separation of church and state. I know not, uh, you know, it's not universally understood anymore within the Christian community, and, and that's really too bad. Our guest today has been Rob Boston, editor of Church and State Magazine. Rob, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Alan. As we close, friends, remember at Freedom Spring, we don't just talk about religious freedom, we help workers suffering religious discrimination. So check out our legal resources page at churchstate, all one word, churchstate.org, churchstate.org. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed, get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom Spring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. And be sure to listen to Freedom's Ring on our SoundCloud radio station or on iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinhardt. Until next week, let freedom ring.